You are listening to the EFCA Theology Podcast, which exists to help pastors and church leaders stay passionate about the gospel and faithful to the scriptures. In 2014, our theology conference took up the theme of Christian faithfulness in a changing culture. At the beginning of that conference, we invited Dr. Fred Sanders to teach a pre-conference seminar on the Trinity. On this episode of the podcast, we share his opening lecture from that conference, which he called Approaching the Doctrine of the Trinity. I often say, with appropriate humility, that I am the world's greatest systematic theologian cartoonist. And I will keep saying that until I meet another one, and then I'll have to adjust my claims. Um, Well, I love the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I don't just love the Trinity, the Trinity being God, but I love the doctrine of the Trinity uh, for a number of reasons. One is that I have pride of ownership in the doctrine of the Trinity. I kind of invented it. Here's what I mean by that. Um, I got saved at the age of 16 in a youth group revival in a Methodist church in western Kentucky. And um, I started reading the Bible for myself a lot. And I particularly honed in after I got through the Gospels and really focused on them for a while. Um, Ephesians caught my eye. And Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, which as I later found out is one big sentence in Greek, um, really got my interest, and I began studying it, and the more I studied it, the more I thought, I can't understand this unless I memorize it, so I memorized it, and as I internalized it, I thought, this whole blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us, etc., how that goes like that, I'm all the way through, it starts with God the Father blessing us and choosing us and, and giving us adoption, and it goes through our redemption that we have in the Beloved, and it uh, finally climaxes with being sealed by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of promise. The more I thought round and round and round about this, I thought, This only works if the one God is somehow the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and our salvation comes from that threeness in the oneness of God. And as I said that to myself, with no theological guidance to speak of, uh, I thought, well, great, now I've invented a heresy of some kind, and I have to quit being a normal Christian, which is all I really wanted to be when I got saved, and I have to become a cult leader, which isn't going to work out really well, because I'm not like a charismatic person, I'm not enough of a people person to be a successful cult leader. So I thought, well, that's, that's really sad. Um, but then I actually started reading around a little bit more, even in resources that were right there already at my fingertips. And I started to notice, hey, I, though I had the experience of seeing this and having that flash of insight, this is actually not just my private pet doctrine uh, that I invented and can only talk people who believe what I tell them into believing. This is the great open secret of the Christian church. So I started looking at things like J.I. Packer's Knowing God has a great Trinity chapter in it, and I realized... Oh, I think I read that and was bored by it when I read it the first time. And then C.S. Lewis, book four of Mere Christianity, had this great Trinitarian argument. And, and I had to look back and say, actually, I have been taught this. This has been shown to me in some good books. I just wasn't impressed by it until I saw it right there in Scripture itself. Um, so two things that have stayed with me from that. The fact that the thing itself is there in Scripture, just waiting to be found and discovered. And secondly, that it came to me without any of the technical vocabulary. Um, but that came to me directly connected to the gospel and the experience of salvation, so that when I hit the doctrine of the Trinity, not knowing I was supposed to call it that, I thought, oh, this explains so much about the salvation I've experienced. Now, I think if there's a coldness in our evangelical churches toward the Trinity, and there is in some places, you may, on the front lines of ministry, have experienced some of this coldness or bewilderment about the doctrine of the Trinity, it comes from the fact that many of us go the other route. We start with the inherited doctrine, And then we wonder, what can explain that to us? All the energy in my teaching ministry on the Trinity has been going the other direction and saying, I have the Christian life, and understanding that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit turns on the lights and makes sense. 
So in other words, I've experienced the doctrine of the Trinity as a solution, not as a problem or question in need of a solution. What I'm going to do with our three hours that we have together, uh, I thought about dividing them up, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but because the three are one, it doesn't really work that way very well for a table of contents. I decided what I'm going to do is with our first hour, give you the kind of talk that I give in churches whenever I'm invited to come and speak about the Trinity. Uh, It's a great honor to go be a guest speaker in a church and explain the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I'm, I'm acutely aware of the danger of spiritual malpractice when I do that. Know that I might just sort of show up for an hour, say things which are either um, clever and satisfying or bewildering in some way, and then just go away and leave people in the pews going, well, that was, remember what that one guy said? That was very confusing. Because, you know, in all fields, a little learning is a dangerous thing. A little learning is a dangerous thing. And so I've been in churches where I've gotten people's attention uh, by telling them, you really need to pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Try that, work with that in, in, in a biblical model of prayer. And um, then I hear from them a couple of weeks later, and they say, remember when you said not to pray to Jesus? I say, no, I didn't say don't pray to Jesus. I commended to you prayer to the Father as the most directly and clearly biblical way of doing it. Um, So I have a thing I do in one hour that I think has the, um, the, the, sheds the most light on the kinds of questions people already have, the sort of felt needs and the questions that are right on the tips of people's tongues and does least damage, right? It does the, the minimal damage for my one hour that I've got there. So it addresses the questions that people already know themselves to have and does the least damage. Second hour, though, what I want to do is be increasingly sneaky about the way I teach the doctrine of the Trinity because I'm convinced that our most powerful teaching on this doctrine happens when we're not saying the T word, when we're not talking about the Trinity or hanging up a big sign that says, Hi, I am a Trinity speaker giving you a Trinity talk. When I'm talking about all sorts of other things and the doctrine of the Trinity just kind of keeps peeking in here and there, that's when the most powerful teaching, I think, can happen. And so I'll try to model some of that and give you sort of the core claim of my book, The Deep Things of God, in that second hour. That will inevitably spill over a little bit into the third hour because I get a little bit excited about this topic and kind of expand the material as I'm looking at it. Um, But with what time we have in that third part, we'll try to go into what I call tacit Trinitarianism, or some of the really on-the-ground practices that we do in the Christian church that make best sense when we've got an elaborate doctrine of the Trinity in front of us. All right, so let's start with... Ooh, this is the first time I've used this clicker. Let's see if I know how to use it. Um, let's see. Oh, no, that's way too far down. Oh, that's way too far down, too. Sorry, I've got to run it way back. There we go. Thank you. I'm sure invisible tech support helped me, saved me on that one. Okay, here's a little motto you may have heard with regard to teaching the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity. Try to understand it and you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. Have you heard this one? Uh, I tried to look up who first said it, and um, it it goes back a ways. There's an element of truth to it, right? What is this capture that is true? Uh, Let me say a good word about it before I blow it out of the water and ask you never to say it again. Um, What's good about it is it recognizes that the doctrine of the Trinity is about God who is knowable but incomprehensible. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is one of those areas where we wouldn't expect absolute clarity. Uh, We need to make clear and non-contradictory statements about it because we're human and we don't get the right to yell at people from clouds and just say stuff. But... This is an area where our intellect is not going to master God. And so that is true. Um, You you shouldn't go into it expecting that you're going to achieve total mastery of it and say, 
there. I got a hundred, and it turns out God's not incomprehensible after all because I know Trinity stuff. So that's good. Try to deny it, and you'll lose your soul. It is true that in the doctrine of the Trinity, we are dealing with things that are core and central to salvation. And so in the words of the Athanasian Creed, or the so-called Athanasian Creed from around the 5th century, um, uh, whoever wants to be saved must think of God in this way. Uh, one God, one being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it certainly is right up against salvation issues and deeply involved in them, as we'll talk about when we talk about the gospel. So those are two things that are true. When you put them together, though, I can't help but notice that the overall package is kind of uh, slamming the door in your face. It's hardly a generous uh, motivational encouragement, like, hey, gang, you ready to study the Trinity? Okay, you're either going to go crazy or go to hell. So those are kind of the two things that could happen here. Um, when I tried to trace this back, you see it a lot in 20th century textbooks of doctrine, and no one ever cites uh, who said it, and even no one ever takes credit for saying it themselves. They always say, as one person has said, you know that kind of quotation, it's, you've done it in sermons, right? Like, well, I don't know where the footnote is for this, and I don't want to say the name anyway because it's hard to spell and it will confuse listeners. So, as one person has said, well, I traced it all the way back to a guy named Robert South in 1700. Here's, this, I think, is the origin of this kind of phrase. You'll notice the phrasing's different. Um, let's see, where are we here? Uh, the Trinity is a fundamental article of the Christian religion, and as he that denies it may lose his soul, so he that too much strives to understand it may lose his wits. Well, South's kind of a clever guy. If you read around in his sermons, he's always doing little turns of phrase like this, so I suspect that I've dated this thing to 1700. Um, notice it's phrased a little bit better in South than the version that we've inherited. Um, it's a fundamental article of Christian religion, and if you deny it, lose your soul. You start there. It's fundamental. It belongs to the things that must be affirmed when confessing Christ. Um, but if you too much strive to understand it, you may lose your wits. Notice there's, there's excess, the excess of drive for understanding built in there. Whereas the way we've kind of dumbed it down is like, if you try to understand it, you'll go crazy. You know, you lose your mind if you try to understand it. No, no, no. South says, if you try too much to understand it. Um, so what I'm hearing here is a little bit of an invitation. I hope I'm not like Jim Carrey in that one movie where they say, you have a, I'd say your chances of dating me are one in a million. He says, oh, one in a million, huh? I'd like those odds. <laughs> so anyway, my whole thing is to present the doctrine of the Trinity as a welcoming doctrine, to put it out there in a way that people are motivated to read it. Um, to, to read about it, to, to come to understand it, to see it in Scripture, and to know that the Word of God in this case, the Word of the Trinity, is not far away. It's not somewhere they have to um, uh, go get advanced degrees to understand, but it's actually near them, even in their mouths, even in their Bibles, even in their hymn books, even there in their practices. Um, the, the Old Testament says, Deuteronomy says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the works of this law. Again, there are two sides to this, right? God has secrets. There are secret things of God. They're his exclusive property, and they're not for you. You want to hear a couple of them? You, you probably do, but that's kind of a sin on your part, and I'm not going to tell them because I don't know them. They're the secret things of the Lord. They belong to him. I have no idea what they are. It's totally up to It's why we need revelation. God has all this stuff he knows. Some of it is appropriate for us to know. Some of it is within our grasp. Some of it is good for our souls and for our salvation. Some of that is revealed. The rest is secret. So never give the impression as a preacher, as a theologian, that you have sort of 
gone on this secret trip around behind God's back and had a little peek at what's going on back there, and now you're coming back from that wonderful journey to let people in on it. Like, guess, what? guess what? God's not saying this because the word Trinity's not in the Bible, but Trinity. Like, really? That's what's in there. So, um, actually, this belongs to Revelation. The other side of it is the things that he has revealed really do belong to us. So God has all kinds of secrets, things we wouldn't know if he didn't tell us, but the ones he's told, we are accountable and responsible and welcome to do something with for practical reasons, that we may do all the words of this law. Also that we may, um, they belong to us and to our children. I'll say a little bit later about what I think the doctrine of the Trinity is especially for. I think it's especially for catechizing or for doctrinal instruction and understanding. Um, It's not primarily uh, for combating heresy. It's not primarily for evangelism. If you've ever tried to evangelize by saying, God loves you and has a wonderful trinity for you to understand. It just doesn't work on frontline evangelism in that way. What the doctrine is for is for catechizing or for building up the understanding of believers. And actually, I think that's built into the structure of Revelation here. Okay, so we have um, a medieval manuscript here of a soldier of faith, a knight on horseback. And um, this is a treatise on the virtues and the vices. So you've got your good Christian soldier there, and he is on a a crazy-looking blue horse. And uh, an angel above him is sort of giving him prophetic guidance. And little doves, the gifts of the Spirit or the uh, virtues that come from the fruit of the Spirit are there, and each of them is facing off against a terrible enemy, uh, a, a vice, sort of an incarnate, uh, personified vice. Really interesting old manuscript. What I'm interested in pointing out in it, though, is the shield that the uh, knight of faith has. It's the shield of the Trinity. Now, it's, it's badly worn, and it's in Latin, so um, you kind of have to take my word for it, plus I'll uh, just write over the top of it. Actually, just let me show you what's in the middle in a diagram of the Trinity, and you can look this up online, shield of the Trinity. For some reason, I don't understand the Wikipedia entry on this is very good. I didn't write it, and I don't know who did, but it's actually a really good Wikipedia entry on theology. That happens sometimes. Um, There's this one thing in the middle, and that is the being of God. And then around the outside of this classic ancient shield of faith is uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, Pater, and then on the uh, top right, Spiritus, it's heavily abbreviated, Spiritus Sanctus, and then at the bottom, Son, Filius. Um, so what is right in the middle there is the one being of God. What is it to be God? It's Godhead or Godhood, we would say, in sort of old-fashioned language. But then around the outside are these three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit um, that, that we get from Scripture when Jesus says, baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you look at those three, we'll come back to this passage in a minute. It's like, what are there three of in there? Well, there aren't three beings or three gods. There's only one God, but there are these three Let's just use the word person for now. It's kind of a placeholder, and we'll come back to what that means. Um, And then you can reduce this further to a nice, clean, logical diagram to say the person of the Father is God. The Father is God. The person of the Father has the being of God. The Son is God. The Spirit Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. Yeah? And the Son is not the Spirit. And, you know, you work your way around the entire triangle. So these persons are not interchangeable with each other. They, they, they are not the same as each other. But they are one being. Now, there's much more that can be said, but this is the basic logical structure of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and the classic doctrine is that we have one being in three persons. 
We'll talk a little bit more later about the doctrine of the Trinity and the logical challenge that it poses, but note right away, it's not a direct logical confrontation. It doesn't say, we believe in one God and yet somehow three gods at the same time. Yeah, that's what we believe. You notice what I did there, one God and three gods. Or God is one person and three persons. Those are both um, false doctrines. Sorry, I have a pedagogical habit. When I say false things, I usually step away from the pulpit. Um, We don't say God is one God and three gods or one person and three persons. Um, What we say is God is one being in three persons. Now, there's still some um, logical issues there for consistency to figure out, well, how? How can the Father be God and the Son be God and yet the Father not be the Son, right? So you can do if A, algebraic for a moment here, if A is X and B is X and C is X, Y isn't A, B, because identicals ought to be convertible in that way, right? That's a happy little math thing. Notice that I've just lost half the audience when I go algebraic with it. Um, But then I also have pushed off the logical challenge at least one level. And plenty of people suffer suffer under the misapprehension that the doctrine of the Trinity is directly and frontally an assault on your logic, right? Well, you want to be a Christian? You need to bow the knee of proud reason and somehow think that one is three, and yet also manage to balance your checkbook, even though you've totally cut the nerve of all mathematical reason. That's not at all what's going on. There's something one level deeper, which I freely admit, still has philosophical issues that are worth looking at. But it's not an in-your-face, you-must-quit-being-reasonable. Notice that? Okay. And the Athanasian Creed uses this great phrase, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the being. So you sit here, think about the doctrine of the Trinity, and as you think about it, you, you might say, so I think one way they could be one is if the Father just is the Son. Ah, ah, ah you're confusing the persons. Ah, okay. Well, maybe the Father is like the top third of God. No, 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 you're dividing the being. Oh, okay. Well, there's only a few hundred mistakes you can make there, and you make them all pretty quickly in a little thought experiment, and you kind of come back to the doctrine of the Trinity. This is a bare-bones basic statement of what the doctrine is. Okay, um, but the big question is, notice that we've gone straight to the logical outline, pedagogical aside here. I like to do this just to get clear on what it is we're talking about. But it's really not worth talking about unless it's in the Bible, right? So who cares if I drew a tidy little diagram and said it's from the Middle Ages and it all kind of works out in a decent way? Why would we believe such a thing? Well, because of the Bible... There it is, and uh, I have the little ribbon sticking out of the Bible there marked Doctrine of the Trinity, because, you know, it's in there. And let me show you where in the Bible it is. Um, This is, again, this subsection of this talk is a little placeholder for much more work that needs to be done to explain in detail how the Doctrine of the Trinity is in Scripture. Um, And the best thing to read on this, if you want an article recommendation, is about 100 years old, B.B. Warfield's article uh, on the Trinity in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It's all over the internet under the title, The Biblical Doctrine of the Trinity. But originally, it was just Warfield's article, The Trinity, in James Orr's multi-volume edited project, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. So um, I'll try to flag a couple of key moves I make here that Warfield did 100 years ago. Okay, there's the Bible. You got the Old Testament and the New Testament. The doctrine of the Trinity, Warfield says, is a biblical doctrine. But it's a biblical doctrine in a strange way. You wouldn't expect it to be fully stated in the Old Testament. And in fact, you don't find it fully stated in the Old Testament because the divine Messiah 
and the eschatological divine spirit are not poured out yet. They're the object of New Testament hope. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in the Bible, but they're not in the Old Testament because all through the Old Testament, you've got the time of promise, right? So you've got this clear monotheism, and there are all kinds of things we could say about hints and foreshadowings and adumbrations and suggestions and puzzles all through the Old Testament. But my God is really good at revealing. And when I read the Old Testament, or as my Old Testament scholar friend calls it, most of the Bible, right? When I read the Old Testament, I don't find the doctrine of the Trinity revealed. I find this forward prophecy of, uh, of this divine Messiah who is going to come and of the eschatological spirit. I see all that's going to come, um, but it's not, it's not clearly stated yet. So I want to give a long leash to hints and, and suggestions and adumbrations while also saying it stops short of revelation. Um, then you get the New Testament and say, good, I've been waiting all this Old Testament time for fulfillment. Give me the doctrine of the Trinity. And instead, what you get in the New Testament is the time of fulfillment, but everyone's kind of looking back, Warfield says, on, remember when the Son of God showed up? Wow, that was amazing. And then the Spirit was poured out on all flesh and is still with us, and Jesus Christ reigns from heaven, and so the Son and the Spirit are here. But sort of like they already got the doctrine of the Trinity and then got on the business of writing gospels and epistles and stuff after the revelation. So Warfield comes to this and says, let me get the Bible and see where and here it's revealed. And he says, it's between the Testaments. And of course, he's Warfield, so he doesn't mean in the Apocrypha or anything like that. And he doesn't mean on that little dividing page you have between Malachi and Matthew. He means in the events of the Father sending the Son and the Spirit. The revelation of the Trinity is in those events. The Old Testament documents look forward to it by promise. The New Testament documents look backwards to it as fulfillment and as something accomplished and made known. But Warfield really takes a stand here and says the revelation itself is in um, deeds and personal presence and not merely in words. It's a pretty interesting take on the, um, on the way the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed in Scripture, especially if you think about your task as a systematic theologian, B.B. Warfield at Princeton Seminary, uh, describing the doctrine of the Trinity in a Bible encyclopedia and saying, it's in there, it's just not in the Old Testament or New Testament. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's a pretty brave way to go. And then, of course, he goes out and shows you all the... Um, prophetic promise and all the kind of fulfillment that looks back. He says, this is really valuable. It's not just a sneaky trick I did to get my article in the encyclopedia. It actually throws a lot of light on the casual or by the way kind of uh, references that you get in the doctrine of the, of, in the Trinity in the New Testament. Does that make sense? Uh, nowhere is Paul writing a letter and saying, okay, you Corinthians knock that off and knock that other thing off and knock that other thing. Okay, now I'm done with that. Let me give you some teaching on the doctrine of God. At no point do you have a chapter where Paul kind of clears the boards and gives you a teaching on the doctrine of God or how to be a monotheist while also believing that Jesus and the Spirit are God. He just doesn't do that. Instead, what's he do? You know what Paul's letters are like. He's writing about the gospel and about discipleship and about church life. And along the way, dozens and dozens of times, he can't help but say Trinitarian kind of stuff. And Warfield says, that's exactly how you'd expect the New Testament to talk if the revelation itself occurred in the events and the personal presence of the Son and the Spirit before the documents were written. I think it throws a lot of light on the New Testament. Um, and I'm not trying to sort of uh, lower the bar here and say like, well, as long as it doesn't have to be stated, it's in the Bible. I think you have to really stake this out and say, it is a biblical doctrine, and both Testaments bear witness to the way the Father sent the Son and the Spirit and made known who God is. 
Okay, um, there will be time for questions and answers. Let's dig in a little bit further, though. Oh, I just said all this. So all through the Old Testament, Messiah and Spirit are coming. All through the New Testament, the big news is Messiah and Spirit already came. Okay, I want to look briefly at three key texts for the Trinity. And again, these are sort of a down payment on much more that could be said. And I didn't even put Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 in here because it's just, there'd be no stopping if I started talking about it. So I just want to do three that I think impress the biblical character of the doctrine of the Trinity on us and give us enough of a sense of how it's in there, right? Because I think it's too low a bar just to say, I can prove the doctrine's in there. I actually want to get some of the texture and some of the tone and sound of how the doctrine of the Trinity is in Scripture. So the first one is John 1, 1 through 3. Even if John is the latest uh, written of the Gospels and has the most sort of processed theological understanding in it, you know what I mean by that? That John will often leave out narrative events and replace them with serious theology. Like Jesus never goes... uh, In six chapters in the upper room with the disciples, Jesus never uh, does a Lord's Supper service. No one eats anything up there except Judas and John. But back in chapter 6, Jesus is walking around saying, if you want any part of me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So John just has this like, let's leave out some stories and just drop theology in there. So John's got that kind of thing going on. For that reason, I think it's good to lead with John for the sake of clarity. Though you could go the other way and kind of creep up towards it with John as the highest, most developed theological understanding. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, there's a lot going on here, but um, one of the things that I really love about John 1 is it seems to take you from the beginning of a gospel back to the beginning of the whole Bible, right? It actually takes you back to Genesis 1-1 in the beginning, and if you know Genesis, you're thinking, yeah, I know what was in the beginning, and John's saying, yeah, you know when the clock started. You know what God did in the beginning, but When we met Jesus, we encountered something that didn't just start when he was born of the Virgin Mary. And it didn't just start back when David prophesied that there would be a greater son of David. And it didn't just start when Abraham was chosen. It didn't just start in the beginning when God made heaven and earth. The thing we met in Jesus, the the, the person that we saw and came to know and came in a direct contact with, we touched, as 1 John says, that goes all the way back such that On page one of the Bible, when in the beginning God makes heaven and earth, I can tell you what was already true of God. I mean, it's a pretty cheeky way to start a Christian message, right? This is before the beginning. What was already in Genesis 1, this one was in the beginning with God. Um, We can talk about the doctrine of the pre-existence of Christ. It's easy to treat pre-existence as just um, merely a temporal statement. Like, here's Jesus, and he was... He was also around before that, like 10 years before that, like 100 years before that. No, the pre and pre-existence requires a bigger jump, right? It's not just that Jesus was around in some way a little bit before he came among us in the flesh. It's that if you get all the way back to the beginning and say, well, Jesus was before that and before that and before that, he was before in the beginning God created, there's nowhere else to go out here, right? You end up uh, doing logically impossible things like, I wonder what God was doing five minutes before he invented time. I bet that was interesting, right? Then an alarm clock went off and God said, time to make time. Like, it just couldn't happen that way, right? You, you, you run the clock back far enough, and at some point you have to say, if I'm going to put Jesus before that, there's nowhere to put him except God. 
And so the doctrine of preexistence forces you to that kind of a jump. It's, it's more of a jump than just Jesus was around before baby Jesus was born. It's, he was way before, yeah, pre, pre-existing. Which, by the way, pre-existing is also a, kind of a strange phrase. Um, if someone asks you if you have a pre-existing condition, you know, medically, you think, well, do you mean do I have an existing condition? Like it exists now? Because if I had a pre-existing condition, it wouldn't exist yet, right? It's prior to its existence. And then this is why I'm not popular at the doctor's office. It's like, you're asking me a very deep question, right? And then the nurse like, no, no, we're not. Just answer the question. Okay. Um, so here's, here's the other thing that's going on. So um, we, are, we know in Jesus what's going on in God before the foundation of the world. It's just this great New Testament phrase. Before the foundation of the world, you get it several times in the New Testament. It is not an Old Testament phrase. The Old Testament tells you about the foundation of the world and God's doings in history and his mighty deeds of salvation in history. I can't, even Isaiah, who's sort of the boldest, you know, Isaiah is very bold. Um, he doesn't go around telling you what was going on before the foundation of the world. It's a quintessentially New Testament phrase because what we got in Jesus Christ is something that gives you insight into before the foundation of the world. It's not just about stuff that happened in history, even the oldest history. It's about God. More could be said there. Uh, there's, there's just a lot in this passage. But let's talk about this word. I'm cheating a little bit because we know down in John 1.14, the word becomes flesh. And so there's no doubt left by the end of this prologue uh, who this person is. In fact, John uses this language about in the beginning was the word, and he gets down to where the word becomes flesh. And from then on, he talks about Jesus and the Son you know, of the Father. And he doesn't go back to this word terminology. It's just to sort of get your attention and move you into the gospel. But this word was with God. Well, that makes sense. The word was with God. But this same word was God. And, you know, you can hold this thing down and work it in all kinds of Greek, and it's just really short, simple words and really pretty simple grammar. You know, Sharp's rule and arguments with the Jehovah's Witnesses notwithstanding. Um, it really says the word was with God and the word was God. My students hit this and say, it's probably some other word in Greek, right? And I say, not unless you have a lousy Bible translation. Like, you know, like it says word because that's what the word word means in Greek. So and it says was because same thing. You know, it's, this is what it says. What's going on here? The word is with God and the word is God. Now, my name's Fred. My son's name is Fred. If I had Fred, the other Fred with me, I could say Fred is with Fred. That would make sense. But then if I said, and Fred is Fred, well, now I've changed it, right? Because one minute I've got relationship and distinction. Fred is with Fred. But then I have to change the subject and say, Fred is Fred. Because if I say, Fred is Fred, you could say, well, no, he's not. He's right there beside you and he's shorter. Oh, okay. Um, So what's going on here in John 1 in very simple short words is, well, you say relation and distinction plus identity, right? This word is somehow related to and distinct from God and yet identical with him. But the, the word was God. It's easy to think either one of these things. I mean, you know, that the word was God and the word became flesh. That's mind-blowing, but it's, you know, you can think that thought. But then to say, and this word was with God. You see what's going on here with the identity and distinction. It's really the top of that logical diagram, the shield of faith about the Trinity, right? You have the Father is God and the Son is God, but the Father is not the Son. It's all right there latent in John 1 in very simple language. Okay, I want to move on to the second passage, though obviously there's so much more we could do with John 1. But the other really classic standout passage for the Trinity... Oh, let me pause for a second there. Um, 
because I know stuff about the Holy Spirit, I say Trinity, when in fact what's going on in John 1, all we got was um, the Father and the Son, right? So you could say it's a merely Benetarian passage, except Benetarian's a horribly ugly word, and why would you use that word? Um, You could also just say that I'm sort of shorthanding the fact that the Holy Spirit, if you read the whole Gospel of John, not much about the Holy Spirit till somewhere around chapter 14, and then he comes on like gangbusters and sort of presses in and says, by the way, I was the secret uh, mystery going on inside of this all the time, and I am now a candidate for inclusion in that little identity distinction dance you learned to do back in the first few verses. Yeah? And, of course, you read the whole Bible and say, are there any other candidates for inclusion in the being of God? And the answer is clearly no. So you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, let me also say, if the Holy, if, if the Holy Spirit gets sort of... Um, short shrift or get sort of short changed in terms of our attention to him. There are a lot of reasons for that, some good and some bad, you know, some habits we need to unlearn. Once you've done this identity distinction thing, and and once you've sort of run your mind around this idea that the word was with God and yet was God, he's with God and he is God, identity but distinction, identity and distinction. Once you've learned how to do that and come up with some coping mechanisms for the fact that this is the truth that is revealed to us and you've got to come up with things to say about it, it's easy enough to include the Holy Spirit because you've learned how to deal with identity and distinction, right? So that's why you spend a lot of your uh, heavy lifting mental work getting identity and distinction with the Father and the Son because it's clearest, because that's how John presents it. John, John knows everything. John could have included the Holy Spirit in the prologue if he wanted to. Didn't need to. Needed you to learn a certain thing about God and his word, um, and then you can include the Holy Spirit later in the gospel. Okay, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 gives us uh, very much a formula that has come to be the traditional Trinitarian formula. So it's the end of Matthew. Jesus has risen from the dead. And this is the, the closing command that Jesus gives. Um, Jesus is to be, in, in Matthew, Jesus is going to be God with us, right? And it ends with him saying, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So it's this fulfillment and proclamation of the God with us promise in Jesus. And he says to the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, here we do get a threeness. If we had to kind of um, gloss over the fact that it was only a two-ness in John 1, here we have a definite threeness stated. Um, and by the way, let me just dig in here a little bit and say, you know, the word Trinity is not found in Scripture. When people ask you, is the Trinity in the Bible, you have to in- initially clarify, do you mean the word? Because we could just get a concordance and answer that question quickly and factually. But if you mean the content of the doctrine of the Trinity, that's different. Here's the thing. I looked up one time, what's the earliest occurrence of the word Trinity? If it's not in the Bible, where is it? Well, you know, in Greek, it's in the second century, and one of the apologists in Latin, it's in, also in the second century, and uh, Tertullian, isn't it? Someone uses it before him, Trinitas, Trias. But being an English speaker, I want to know what's the first English occurrence in our relatively young language downstream from Greek and Latin. Um, well, so you go back into Middle English, and you end up going all the way back into Anglo-Saxon, um, Old English proper. And this word that I've got in there with the, what it looks like a guy on a motorcycle or something at the front, it's, it's a thorn, it's a, it's a TH sound there at the beginning. Threnes. I don't really speak Anglo-Saxon, but something like that. Threnes. Thorn, R-Y-N-N-Y-S-S-E. Well, you don't even have to know Anglo-Saxon to look at that and say, I think that says threeness. Yeah? 
Well, look at Matthew 28. Go baptize in the name, the one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I think there's a threeness in that verse, isn't there? So, on the one hand, I freely admit the doctrine of the Trinity is not in Scripture, and the word word Trinity is not in Scripture. The doctrine of the Trinity is there in, in solution, I would say. I freely admit the word is not there. But remember the Latin word Trinity? Trinity is just Latin for threeness, right? Triunity, that's different. That's a special word we made up to refer to this thing. But Trinity, Trinitas, just means threeness. Well, imagine if we were all sitting around speaking Anglo-Saxon. We'd read Matthew 28 at our Bible study and say, what do you think? Is there threeness there? And you'd have to say, yeah, check out the threeness. Now, then we could do theology and have all kinds of instructive arguments about what you think about the threeness, right? Jehovah's Witnesses would say, here's what I think about the threeness. It means nothing with regard to the being of God, right? Um, and, and Unitarians would say, yeah, the threeness is just sort of a manifestation of what the one personal one God is doing. Trinitarians, Christians would say, no, the threeness that we get here at the climax of Matthew reflects a threeness in the being of God. Three what? Three persons. You see how far along we are towards constructing the doctrine of the Trinity? So anyway, um, when asked if the word Trinity is in Scripture, I always admit, nope, it's not. But if I feel sneaky, I go ahead and start down the threeness route. And I look at Matthew 28 and say, when I'm interpreting just the plain sense of what's there in Scripture, am I allowed to count? Like, is, is three in that verse or isn't it in that verse? You know, it's sort of like, uh, that's weird. It's like asking if gravity's in Newton's apple, you know? I mean, now you get into these sort of interesting uh, hermeneutical questions. Anyway, just to point out to you, threeness is sitting there needing to be interpreted. One thing we could say is there's the, the one name, especially if you load up on your Old Testament theology of what the name of God is, the one special revealed name, not all the different signifiers that were invited by God to point towards him with, but the actual revealed name, you know, the tetragrammaton, the, the one that names him. There's that. But then there are three who's, persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, we're not far from that logical diagram of the Trinity that we started with. Um, anyway, if you've got three and one together, you do have the triunity beginning to kick in here. Okay, much more could be said. Matthew 28, 20 also needs to be located in the context of the Gospel of Matthew really clearly crucially with the opening moves that the Gospel of Matthew makes and with chapter 11's language about the Father and the Son. If you, if you remember that, right? Right before Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor uh, and are heavy laden, he says, the Father has given all things to the Son, using that sort of absolute the Father and the Son language. When modern biblical scholars hit that, they say, this is a bolt from the Johannine blue. What, like, what? Jesus doesn't talk like this in Matthew. Right? And I think, well, but Jesus talked like that in Relio Trulio life, and Matthew reflects that right here. Also, literally, Matthew does that thing in, cha- in chapter 1 and 11 and 28. Anyway, more could be said here, but um, last passage I want to look at, classic Trinity passage, the end of 2 Corinthians, the very end. So Paul's gone through this whole laundry list of, uh, I really think of Corinthians as the damage control church, right, where Paul rarely gets to just lay out what he's thinking, but he's just stomping out fires left, right, and center. So he gets to the end, though, and he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Um, there's, a, there's an appropriation here of the three persons who show up, and each has kind of a, an attribute or a benefit attached. Um, first of all, you have to be able to read God as meaning God the Father, which 95% of the time in the New Testament it does. When the word God occurs in the New Testament without specifying 
um, then it needs to be read as pointing to the anachronistically what we would call the first person, the Trinity. Um, John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. It just says God there, but it means God the Father. You can tell from looking at John 3.16, what kind of God can give his only son? Well, it's got to be God the Father, right? So same thing in Paul's usage. When he says God, except in a handful of cases where the word God, theos, is getting um, linked to Jesus in a special way, right? And there are a handful of those Jesus is God passages in the New Testament. But the overwhelming majority, God means God the Father. Um, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Here you start to really get into the revealed character of these three persons. So um, you start with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, partly because that's Paul's traditional sign-off. That's, like, that's how Paul normally ends a letter. For some reason, he decides the Corinthians need a little extra helping of explicitly uh, triune kind of teaching. So he says, yes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and that grace brings us or is brought to us by the love of God the Father. Notice that here love is sort of appropriated to the first person of the Trinity, and this is a good clue that sometimes in our descriptions of the Trinity, we can sort of use God the Father as the placeholder for the stern authoritarian uh, judge who sort of has standards and righteousness to uphold, and the Son as the merciful one with the love. You know, we can kind of um, ap- appropriate, and I would say misappropriate, some divine attributes and attitudes that way. So John Owen, the Puritan, who has a little book um, of communion with God in the three persons, where he says, just do a word study. Just look at every reference to God the Father in the New Testament and see what concepts are clustered around God, especially the word Father, but also those places where the, the, the word God must mean Father. Owen says, there are two things that will come out of this really simple word study that you can just do with your English Bible and a concordance. Two things that the New Testament's usage is really trying to impress on you. Number one is election, that God chooses you. I mean, Owen's a very, very Calvinist, so you'd kind of expect him to get that. But it's also just very, very true that it's God the Father who does the choosing the vast majority of the time. So why are we chosen? Because God the Father chooses. And then Owen gets to the big one is, it's love. If you look for what is said of us, uh, said of God the Father in the New Testament, the leading thing in your theology of God the Father ought to be love, because he is the one who loves, right? It doesn't say, for instance, um, um, the only Son of God somehow managed to convince God the Father to love us, right? John 3.16 says, God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only Son, right? Atonement comes from love. It doesn't uh, bring love into being, right? It removes barriers to love. So that's what you get here, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father. And then you have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Um, In 1 John, John says that our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. But if you kind of splice that into this last verse of of 2 Corinthians, you can see fellowship, koinonia, it's a Holy Spirit word. It's, It's a thing brought about by the Holy Spirit. So whenever you've got people living in fellowship. Um, You can even trace this back in the Old Testament. Um, When you have the blessings of community, when brethren live together in harmony, it's because of an anointing. You know that psalm with the the really strange image of the oil even running down Aaron's beard and staining his clothes? You go, yeah. Um, You don't need an advanced degree in biblical typology to know that the, the oil of the Old Testament is a symbol of the presence of the Spirit. Yeah. So the Spirit is all about communion. And so when 1 John says... Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. 
Um, I'm not trying to cram the Holy Spirit into that so-called Benetarian verse, but I think, wow, communion, fellowship, a Holy Spirit word with the Father and the Son. Participation is being brought in here. Okay, um, this is the last verse that I look at in a quick, I only get three passages sort of intro to the Trinity. And it really brings us to the thing that we'll spend most of the second hour talking about, which is that salvation is by and from and in and with the triune God. So it's a fatal error to give the impression in talking about the doctrine of the Trinity that it's this um, fact about God over there that we sort of stand outside of and point to and say, I will now make true statements about the structure of God, and we sort of can do that um, semi-algebraically. We're actually already involved in what is Trinitarian about God because our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, so there's a kind of Christian participation in the things that we need to know, the things that have been revealed by God about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that we're not saying, okay, there's the gospel on the one hand, talking about that. Now let's change the subject and talk about the God who brought this thing about. When you're talking about the gospel, the material content of the nature of this God is already right there. So that's some of what I mean by proving the doctrine of the Trinity is in the Bible, but also proving it in such a way that you get some sense of the tone um, and the scope and the quality of the Trinitarian revelation. Okay. Um, that is a brief statement of Trinity in the Bible. Notice that I'm sort of engaging people when I have one hour to talk with the church about this at the level of their felt needs and their known interests. And so we start with a bare-bones logical description, which is in danger of sounding like, follow along with me class as I diagram a triangular-shaped God over here on the board objectively, right? But then I move us to an understanding of the fact that this is about our salvation and the God in our salvation. What I always close with is a description of errors with regard to the Trinity. Um, and this picture is an error in lots of ways. I don't know if you can see it close enough. It's a sort of a Jesus-shaped sort of a figure uh, who has three faces superimposed on his head. It's really quite terrible. And he's holding, of course, the logical diagram that we've looked at. Um, he's holding a, you know, a version of that. These, uh, I've, I've got a whole slideshow of horrible, horrible images of the Trinity, and I show them to you, and you know how you can't unsee something, right? Like, <laughs> click at your own risk. Um, they're all terrible, and, and people keep making them down through 20 centuries of Christian art, and people in authority keep saying, stop making those terrible images, right? And yet they keep, they keep being generated. What I actually like about them, and the reason I use them pedagogically, is not just to ruin everybody's um, mental life, but... The errors that you make when you're doing art are so obvious. I mean, it doesn't take someone with a lot of theological sophistication to look at this and say, ah, that's terrible. <laughs> like, like, I don't know what God looks like, but not that. In fact, Gregor Nazianzus in the fourth century says exactly that. He says, whoever thinks of God as one head with three faces will never see the face of God, whatever it may look like. <laughs> So the errors are obvious. Whereas with words and logical operators, we can say really stupid stuff and not notice it. You ever do that? You ever like stop and diagram one of your sentences and say, wow, that is utter nonsense now that I think about it. Yeah. Whereas when you do it with paint, it's really obvious. Um, here are some heresies to avoid. Um, even in this presentation, I want to put the heresies sort of on the tail end because, again, I'm trying to welcome people into the doctrine of the training and not lead with danger. There be landmines ahead, right? Tread with care. But towards the end, I want to say, well, here are some heresies. It's helpful to know the names. Tritheism, three gods. 
Um, this would be the Athanasian Creed warned us against dividing the, uh, the substance. And so if you talk about God in such a way that you have three distinct gods, even if you swear that they're best buddies and they're in really close relationship with each other, you've still got three gods, and that is not in any stretch of the imagination what the Bible could be teaching. Um, it's rare. I think it's very rare. I rarely meet a tritheist. It takes a certain level of education to make a mistake this stupid. Right? So the, the average person is, is not going to fall into tritheism. Um, Mormonism is different. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has actual polytheism, so they could actually be confessing real tritheism, but it's confusing in various ways. Um, I would just say avoid giving the impression of tritheism, right? Avoid talking about the Trinity in such a way that, that sounds like you're talking about three gods that somehow are in this same god club and really like each other. Um, Mormonism, kind of tritheistic, except it's just full-on polytheistic if you go with that interpretation of what the Mormons are saying. Modalism is a heresy that's more of a live option. Um, What you have with modalism in any of its forms is really there's one God who is one person who is really one, and then at some other level, which you can't say the word really about, God does three things or shows three things or manifests in three ways or something like that. That's why a lot of our shorter doctrinal statements will say something like, um, the one God eternally exists and manifests himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? If you accidentally say, the one God manifests himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's not sufficiently guarded against modalism. You see, that's the eternally exists part. It says, at the bottom level, at bedrock of who God is, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not that secretly behind the curtain he's one God, because after all, what can we know? There's just one God back there. But then he puts on different masks when he does different tasks or slips into different modes when he's in different moods. There are different kinds of modalism. There's... um sort of serial, um, serial tritheism or serial modalism where um, the one God sort of, first he feels fatherly, so he fathers the world, and then he feels sonly, so he becomes Jesus Christ, then he feels really spiritual, so he fills the church, right? That's, that's kind of um, the one God, the one personal God doing these different things. Oneness Pentecostalism um, is a, uh, probably the leading, fastest-growing kind of modalism out there right now. Um, and if you run into these the people in their churches, it's, I could get paranoid about this. I really think it's a pretty fast-growing movement. I always try to get them to be as clear as possible. There's one oneness organization that prints a T-shirt that says, Jesus is God the Father. And I think, cool, that is so obviously wrong. I'm going to start asking you to wear that T-shirt. right? Because when they actually put all their cards on the table and let you know, um, what they think, then it becomes very clear. But there's oneness Pentecostals are very uh, confusing the way they talk about it. Um, but they basically think that Jesus is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Another error to avoid, subordinationism. Subordinationism, um, again, when you get to bedrock, it says there's one real God, and then there's his Son, who is not quite fully God. Now, there are various versions of this, but basically you have one real God and a couple of lesser gods. Arianism uh, in the 4th century, has in, in their Christology, they have a pretty exact mapping onto the Jehovah's Witness theology, um, which is that Jesus is um, he's a super-duper-duper angel, right? I mean, uh, he's so high up that functionally he's God, so you can probably even worship him, but he's not God-God. Like yeah. And then the Holy Spirit can also slide off that into the scale— bigger danger with the Holy Spirit is you'll tend to describe him as a force who's not personal. 
Um, that's subordinationism. Even lower than Arian or Jehovah's Witness theology is a view that Jesus is merely a man, so some kind of adoptionism or something like that. Um, but that's almost not even a Trinitarian heresy because it's so clear that there's God, and on the other hand, there's the man Jesus Christ. Right? Arianism has this super-duper very high view of Christ. Um, I say it's a high view of Christ. What I mean is, compared to like Jesus was a good guy who grew up and did swell things, you know, the Arian view is he's way, way bigger than Michael the archangel. He's like, like God made the sun and then he made every. I should stand in the heresy corner for this. God made the sun and then he made everything else. So in that sense, it's very high. I, I feel free to say on that relative scale, Jehovah's Witness subordinationism is high. I just think it's sort of like debating about which of us could swim um, from, uh, you know, America to Europe, right? Like, some of us would do really, really well and get very far. And, and it'd be fair to say, yeah, relatively speaking, like, I drowned in, 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 like, just a few yards, and you drowned a few miles out. That's really impressive. You know? like, you're still, you know, on any map that can show any kind of resolution, you're, you're not effectively any closer to Europe because Europe's just that far away. If God is infinitely exalted above all finite creation, then it kind of doesn't matter how high the highest angel is. Yeah, so subordinationism still subordinationism. Okay, um, those are heresies to avoid. And then I like to close a teaching on the Trinity where, most, uh, where, where it seems to me that the felt needs would have a start. If I say, hi, I'm here to speak about the Trinity. It's kind of my thing. I'm into it. People will say, oh, I have a question about the Trinity. Is it kind of like a three-leaf clover? Like that's, that's usually the first question if I just don't do any teaching but just take questions from the floor. Um, so I get all the way to the very end and say, here's the thing about illustrations of the Trinity. We're not talking about heresies anymore, but we are talking about a kind of a danger zone. And you know the illustrations of the Trinity. Um, we hear lots of them. We hear like God is kind of like a three-leaf clover. Um, God is kind of like, how, how can the three be one is kind of what all these illustrations are after. Well, three can be one, sort of like water is water, but it exists as uh, liquid and as gas and as a solid, you know? And, um, and then I'll point out, well, like first it's, first it's solid, and then it's water, uh, then it's liquid, and then it's gas. And, and that usually, most people will say, oh, I get it. That's a, it's a really dim little inkling of maybe how three could be one, but it's a perfect illustration of modalism, Right? And that, so that's the thing with all these analogies. They're all like tiny little hints that give you a glimmer of, oh yeah, I could kind of see how three, one kind of works. Um, but they're perfect textbook examples of heretical errors about the Trinity. So generally not worth investing a lot in. Also, if I'm giving that talk and there are physicists in the audience, they always have a complex explanation of how the, the body of water could actually at triple point be sort of all three at one time. And I say, well, yeah, but one doesn't love the other one and send it as his beloved son, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, um, here are some key things to keep in mind as you work with these different illustrations. Number one, there's nothing like God. And, and in the doctrine of the Trinity, I'm convinced we're dealing with one of the ways in which there's nothing like God. So if I tell you God is the maker of heaven and earth, and you go, interesting. Do you have any examples of that? Uh, I don't have... There's nothing like God, the maker of heaven and earth. I don't have any illustrations of that. I mean... Uh, you know, I baked a loaf of bread. I guess it's kind of like that. <laughs> and you see, oh yeah, you made a loaf of bread. Interesting. I can see how that's kind of like being maker of heaven and earth. And I go, yeah, it's more not like it. <laughs> it's a teeny bit like it and infinitely not like it. And, and so when we're dealing with the doctrine of the Trinity, we really are dealing with one of those areas where there's nothing like God. 
And so we just need very low expectations about what we're doing with any of these illustrations or models. Most illustrations are a little helpful for understanding the Trinity, but are perfect illustrations of subtrinitarian heresies. And the main things are the plain things here. God the Father saved us by sending the Son and the Spirit, right? So um, a lot of people come to the doctrine of the Trinity with this expectation like, this is a really strange, mysterious thing that maybe I've never thought about before. And, of course, there are those elements of high knowledge in the doctrine of God. But we also want to say, actually, this is very close to you. If you, like, succeeded in getting saved, then you kind of know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're right there soaking in it. You're kind of in touch with the main things that we need to know. And so let's not look away from the reality of God in Christ by the power of the Spirit to icebergs or shamrocks or something like that. Do you see how that's a a bad alienation of affections away from where the Trinity is to be found? I'll also say that um, if you're talking with someone and the dialogue is going a certain way and an illustration of the Trinity seems helpful for initial plausibility, go for it. According to legend, um, Patrick converted all of Ireland by holding up a shamrock and say, the Trinity's kind of like this. And all of the Irish said, you know, Bagora, let us be a Christian nation. Right? So if you have a chance to convert Ireland with a shamrock, go for it. You should completely do it. But in general, you need to keep these guidelines in mind. And you should be suspicious when people change the subject from the gospel to shamrocks. You should think, possibly you didn't get the main thing I was saying. Yeah. If that's what you think is going on with the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay. The Trinity is not a distraction from the gospel, but a super-condensed explanation of it. And the depths and the mystery that we're leading people into as we contemplate the Trinity is a super-condensed explanation of the gospel. Now, that's what we'll talk about in our second hour. So let's take a short break right now.